You know, our great city, Philadelphia, is the city of brotherly love. However, you will not experience that at 4.30 when we play the Dallas Cowboys today. (laughs) Throwing snowballs at Santa Claus is not brotherly love, and we get it like a four-hour dispensation. Uh, Chicago's the Windy City. New Orleans, the Big Easy, right? Uh, New York City, in all its grandeur, has three nicknames. The City That Never Sleeps, the Big Apple. Anybody know the third? Nobody in the first service. Anybody know? The Empire State, that's not the city, it's Gotham. Gotham City is the other uh, name. Jerusalem has seven, if you can believe it. Zion, the city of David, city of the everlasting hills. Get this one, the holy city. Even though a third of its inhabitants today, right now in 2015, are avowed atheists. Here's another one that's almost laughable, the city of peace. City of Peace has been destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, and 44 times it's been either captured... Or, you know, recapture. So we're going to talk about Jerusalem. We're going to talk about David. Now, to understand this, remember, we're in a series where we're looking at Israel. Past and present. Last week I took you all the way from Abraham to the time of Jesus. And you remember, it wasn't Moses that brought them into the promised land. It was his general Joshua. And when they get into the promised land, God tells Joshua, everywhere your footsteps, I have given you that land. That was Genesis 15, the title deed to the land. So when Joshua comes in, he apportions the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the sons of Jacob. And he apportions it by lots, not building lots. They cast lots. Now, if you don't know what that is, in the Old Testament, whenever there was a decision where it could go one way or the other way, like uh, do I attend this college or that college, They would cast what was called lots. So it would be like dice for you and me. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh my gosh, these are the people of Israel. These are spiritual people. They have the law. They have the name of God. And you're telling me they would cast dice? Yeah, they really would. But here's what they believe. They believe the dice were loaded. They believe that God was so intertwined with their lives that the dice would actually roll out according to God's plan. Now, that's not a license for you to go to Atlantic City, bet on the NFL today, play the lottery. Christians shouldn't bet, okay? It's foolish. The Bible says that. Uh, just to give you uh, a scripture that kind of talks about this, uh, Psalm 16 talks about how the dice is cast, or the lot is cast, and you are the portion of my inheritance. You are maintaining my lot, the the lies have fallen to me in pleasant places, yes, I have a good inheritance. Solomon said the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole dispersing thereof is the Lord. So they believe God was involved. Now when Joshua brings them in the land, he said, look, this is a land of hills and valleys and streams and coastal areas and rocky places. And yet God's going to bless us in this land. Now last week I told you because we're doing a lot of history, I'm going to give you some faith lessons on the way. Here's why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said all of these things, what things? The entire Old Testament stories that we're looking at were written for our learning and our growing upon whom the ends of the age have come. So it's God's intention that we wouldn't make the same mistakes Israel made. We could actually learn from a congregation that's gone before us, right? I think that's something we all want to do. So here's faith lesson number one this morning. Be content with your lot in life. This is a key to a happy life with God and your neighbors. Be content with the lot you've been given. 
No one in this room planned who their parents would be, where they would be born, and the gifts they would receive. That's your lot in life. Now, what you make of your lot is another story, and we should strive uh, to plow our fields and work our land and the bloom where we're planted. There's a magazine that comes out every year that I loathe, where on the cover they'll say the 10 greatest places to live in America. Have you ever seen that? And, uh, you know, they'll tell you uh, these are wonderful places. They'll tell you everything about the place. Here's why I loathe it. First of all, it makes people unhappy because we're always peeking over the hedge looking at somebody else's lot, right? And you look at someone else and you think, oh, my gosh, if I could only live in Cordelline, Idaho, the number one place to live, then I would be happy. And the answer is you wouldn't be happy, right? Because there are unhappy people in Cordelline, Idaho. I think you know that. Uh, the second thing is you would bring you with you. That's a problem. <laughs> and then the third thing you need to understand is, do you know how those places become the best places to live? Because the advertisers pony up the money. If there's enough advertisers, they make that place number one. How else would Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania ever be the best place to live in America? It's not where you live, Joshua said. But in chapter 1, verse 8, this is my life verse. He said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You will meditate in God's word day and night. You. No one will do it for you. You will do it. And then what did he say you would have? Great success. He didn't say if you live in Cordelia, Idaho. He didn't say if you live on the coast in Israel. He said you can bloom where you're planted. And if the word of God is in your heart and you obey God, you will have great success. That's faith lesson number one. Be content with your lot in life. So, uh, Joshua doles out the land. If you want to do a really quick, fascinating study, read Genesis 49 on your own. This is 400 years before Joshua takes them in the land. Where Jacob is old and dying, he's sitting on a rocking chair, and he's blessing his sons. It was very common in that day. And he goes one by one through the tribes, the sons of Israel, and when he blesses them, it's exactly in accordance to Joshua when the land is apportioned to them. So last week we talked about free will. We talked about the sovereignty of God. Read chapter 49, read Joshua, and you'll see how those things coalesce. Now the promise is wherever your foot steps, I've already given you the land. That's a promise. The problem is they had to inherit it. They had to believe God. Now, God already gave them the land. Everything else is details. So the first city is Jericho. Jericho is a fortified city. It's got gates. And uh, God says, all right, here's how we're going to do it. This is just details. March around the city for six days. On the seventh day, march around seven times and blow a trumpet. Well, they do. And the gates and the walls fall down and they take Jericho. I actually saw National Geographic show that tried to explain this, that there was a fault line at Jericho, and that when they blew the trumpets and when they all screamed, uh, the walls came down. Now, you may have heard of this urban legend, what if like a billion Chinese all jumped at the same time, would we like fly off the planet? You know? No, those are urban legends, they're not true. Again, God gave them the land, it's all details after that, same with your life, it's all details. How much are we going to trust? Well... This great thing happens, and Israel gets cocky. And they come to a city named Ai, they think it's a milk run, and they get defeated real bad. And they learn their lesson. They fail forward, and they begin to conquer most of the land. 
in Genesis chapter 15, but there's one piece of real estate they could never conquer, and that's Jebus, or the land of the Jebusites. Here's why they could never conquer this citadel of Zion. Um, if you come to Israel with us 2016, I hope you do, we'll go down to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea's remarkable. The first time you lay eyes on it, you will believe the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it looks like the moon. And, of course, now they got Vegas-style hotels down there. You can take mud baths and all those things. But you can actually buy a T-shirt at the Dead Sea that says, I've been to the lowest place on earth. And here's what's remarkable. That night, we go to Jerusalem. And when you get to Jerusalem, you'll be 2,580 feet above sea level. That's why it's called beautiful for situation. The elevation of Jerusalem. In the Bible, everyone's always going up to Jerusalem because, again, it's 2,580 feet above sea level. There's a Gihon spring under it, with, which gave water to the city. By the way, that's the most excavated site in the entire world. And that brings us to David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. And also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler. Therefore, the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, and he was 30 years old. Remarkable. For years running from Saul, David's only 30 years old. When he began to reign, and he would reign for 40 years. Verse 6 says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David can not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the city or the stronghold of Zion that is now the city of David. So I'm going to give you a few key dates today. You might want to mark these down. 1000 B.C., David takes Jerusalem, becomes the capital of Israel, not Hebron. Very important. Now, David was a remarkable man. If you read 1 Samuel and Kings, I mean, uh, there has been rarely a man like this man. Uh, he's a king. We know he's a warrior. He could have retired after defeating Goliath and lived off the royalties, right? But there's a song in Israel that Saul has slain his thousands, David is ten thousands. Uh, one, one author said that... Um, when we look at David, that it says he had the uh, poetic soul of Shakespeare, the fierceness of Tiger Woods, the musicianship of Pavarotti, the statecraft of Lincoln, and on top of that, he looked like Brad Pitt. <laughs> now, if you're a man, you've got to hate a guy like this, right? He's like Tom Brady with, like, extra gifts. In the Bible, Abraham, who's the father of our faith, appears in 14 chapters, Elijah, 10 chapters. Uh, David appears in 66 chapters. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament, 60 times in the New Testament. He's the last human being mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where he's called, Jesus is called, the offspring of David. This is a remarkable man, the king of Israel. But do you know what his greatest accolade was? The man after God's own heart. I can't even believe God would say there was a man after his own heart. And you think, well, how could it be David? He had three wives, he committed adultery, he committed murder. David knew he was imperfect. Read the Psalms. 
He was the man after God's own heart because he never turned his heart to an idol. In all his up and downs, he kept his eyes on God, even as a fallen man. He knew he was a sinner. The other thing about David is he believed in the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed in the land of Israel, the chosen people. He believed that Jerusalem was the place where God would put his name. And he believed in the temple. He wanted to build it so bad. David wrote 76 psalms when he captures Jerusalem here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant there. He writes three of his psalms. Psalm 15, Psalm 24, Psalm 68. I want to read you Psalm 24. It's very familiar. We've put it to contemporary songs. He says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in them. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Everybody know that hill now? It's not the Poconos, right? The hill is Zion. It's Jerusalem. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who's not lifted his soul to an idol. Who can worship God on his holy mountain? People with clean hands and a pure heart. That means no one. Only the redeemed. That's why there were animal sacrifices. That's why Jesus had to come. And then he goes on to say this, and it's remarkable. He said, this is Jacob, the generation who seek his face. He doesn't say Israel. He says Jacob. We talk about Jacob being a scoundrel. But again, David knows what's going on. He knows this is the place where God will meet with sinful man. Faith lesson number two. David had some idea what God was doing. He had some idea of this grand vision. He had some idea of a temple and a house for God. But there's no way he knew all the implications. He didn't know that one day a widow would come in and put her last two coins. And Jesus would say that story would come down to our generation. He didn't know that Jesus would walk in the temple and say, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. Anyone who's, you know, burdened down in life and heavy laden, I'll give them rest. He didn't know that Jesus would be crucified there. He didn't know Calvary Chapel of Delaware County would go in the spring of 2016. Gentiles looking at Roman ruins with Jewish tour guides. Remarkable. He didn't know three faiths would worship there one day. He didn't know that most of our 24-hour cable news network will be filled with things about Jerusalem. David didn't know any of this. The faith lesson for you and me is, look, as American Christians, we think it's all about us. I fall into the same trap. That's why we read Christian self-help books. That's why we complain about church and other things in the Christian life. It's, does everybody understand our tribe is greater than us? There's more at stake than our lives. Yes, God wants you to be financially prosperous. Yes, he wants you to have good marriages. But there's something grander going on than our little itsy-bitsy lives. Well, David's son Solomon finally builds the temple in Jerusalem. In 1 Kings chapter 8, he dedicates the temple with a prayer. And can I tell you, I believe he meditated on this prayer and wrote it down over a long period of time. A lot of times people will say, uh, you know, you shouldn't be scripted when you preach or lead worship. You should just let the Spirit move. To which I say, I've seen what people said was the Spirit moving, and if that's the Spirit, we're in trouble, okay? Solomon writes this grand prayer about the foreigner coming in the house of prayer to all nations. Slides are out of order. Let's go back to the prayer. And he said, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above 
or an earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Notice that word covenant. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which of you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Solomon understood there was a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now it was David. And it went down to Solomon. You and I can look back and say, if God was faithful to them, he'll be faithful to us. See, God doesn't ask for blind faith. God said there's a whole people group who get this. Well, Israel was unfaithful, and the house that was built to be a prayer for all the nations gets destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Uh, They take the inhabitants of Jerusalem captive. They take the holy furniture out of the place. And for 70 years, they're in captivity. They're under the judgment of God, literally. And then Nehemiah comes back and builds the wall. He works for a Persian king, Artaxerxes. And in 538 B.C., construction begins by Zerubbabel. You can read this in the book of Ezra on a second temple. Now, the second temple wasn't as grand as Solomon's. But the grandest of all the temples was the second temple that Herod the Great took to scale in 50 B.C. He put Roman columns in there and porticos. He overlaid it with fine gold. So when you look from the Mount of Olives, it glistened in the sun. This is the temple Jesus ministered in. Now, Jesus' relationship to the temple was a little strange. We know that he cleansed it twice. Uh, He would say strange things like, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Because what Jesus knew was the whole sacrificial system, the whole temple system, the whole Old Testament was pointing to him. And when he would die on the cross, he would say, it is finished. And the veil was torn in two, the veil that separated man from the Holy of Holies we would now become the temple of the living God. Now, the most astounding thing Jesus ever said is one day the disciples, probably on the Mount of Olives, said, Lord, look at this temple. Look at these stones. Isn't it brilliant? And Jesus said there's coming a day when there's not going to be one stone left upon another. That's like me telling you the White House isn't going to exist in a couple years. You're like, what? What's going on? In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 24, uh, Jesus gave them details. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that will fulfill all things that were written. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in that day. I think in Matthew he says, woe to you if your flight's on the Sabbath. And they'll fall by the edge of the sword and they'll be led away captive, get this, into all the nations. Did you ever hear of the wandering Jew? Into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. In 70 A.D., Titus and the Roman legions came and destroyed Jerusalem. They began their campaign in 66 A.D., where they literally surrounded Jerusalem, like Jesus said, and they starved the people out. 
took a while, but they finally burnt the city. Now, there was a man named Josephus. You may have heard about him. He was a Jewish priest of the upper class. He got captured between 66 and 70 AD, and the Romans, instead of killing him, had him record the wars. And he would later write a history called the Wars of the Jews. This is what he wrote about them conquering Jerusalem. He said, while the temple, uh, while the temple blazed, the victors plundered everything that fell in their way and slaughtered wholesale all who were caught. No pity was shown for age, no reverence for rank. Children in gray beards, laity and priests alike were massacred. Every class was pursued and encompassed in the grasp of war, whether supplements for mercy or offering resistance. The roar of the flames steaming far and wide mingled with the groans of the falling victims, and owing to the height of the hill and the mass of the burning pile, one would have thought that the whole city was ablaze. This is very important. You would have indeed thought the temple was boiling over from its base. Now why am I reading you this? Because Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. When the temple was on fire, boiling, as Josephus said, uh, the stones began to crumble and all. The gold that Herod had put in kind of melted and went in between the stones. And Josephus writes about the Romans coming in and literally chiseling the gold that was stone upon stone. There was not a stone left upon another. Cassius said... The city was destroyed on the very day of Saturn. That's our Saturday. The day the Jews reverenced the most. Jesus said, pray that your flight would not be on the Sabbath. He prophesied all this about 35 years before it happened. The Romans named the city Alia Capitolina. It becomes pagan. Until 330 AD where the Roman emperor Constantine supposedly converts to Christianity. Now, I believe his mother Helen was devout. She would travel to the Middle East and she would ask locals, where did Jesus die? Where, where's the tomb they placed him in? And they built churches there. And the era of Christianity kind of ushers in for 300 years. And then another very significant date happens. 630 A.D. You cannot talk about is, uh, excuse me, Jerusalem without talking about Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Muhammad was born in Medina. He was a pagan. He worshipped at the Kaaba, which had 360 gods. But he was fascinated by the Jews. There was an enclave of about 30,000 of them in Medina. Jews, by the way, were scattered all over the earth. They lived in every country, even all throughout Arabia. And he was amazed because... He called them the people of the book. They had one book. They had one God, not 360. And they had one temple. Uh, one day he claims the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And he wrote the Koran, which means the recitation. Do you know why it was a recitation? Because he couldn't read or write. And he claimed this was the revelation from God. Islam says he's the last prophet. And uh, so now they have one book. And he goes to the Kaaba, this pagan temple, and he, kill, he destroys, you know, the 359 other gods, and he keeps Allah, the moon god. Now they have one god and one temple in Mecca. Medina is holy because Muhammad was born there. Mecca is holy because the Kaaba is there. Every Muslim must make a pilgrimage once in his life there. And Islam is off and running. Now, 
few things here. After his death, they make Jerusalem their third holiest site because they claim Muhammad went to heaven on a white steed. Now, I find this fascinating because Jerusalem is the place where God said he would put his name, and it's mentioned a thousand times in the Bible. But it's not mentioned once in the Quran. If Jerusalem were holy and important to Muslims, why would it never appear in the Quran? Let me take you a step further. The word love, the Bible says God is love. The word love appears over and over in the Bible. Uh, very difficult to find the word love in the Quran only when Allah loves those who fight or have jihad for him. And the first jihad was against the Jews. Uh, all 30,000 were slaughtered in Mecca. He now says that the rightful heir is Ishmael and uh, 1,500 years of anti-Semitism begin. Jerusalem survives the Crusades, the Ottoman Empire. In 1840, a Zionist movement begins. It begins because the Jews are looking for a homeland. Men like Herzl and Ben-Gurion dream about this. Uh, also, Protestants understand biblical prophecy, and they think, okay, if God's going to come back, it's, there's got to be an Israel, there's got to be a temple, there's got to be a Jerusalem. Political things start to arise. Uh, there's the Balfour Declaration in 1917. The British have a mandate. They, they control most of the Middle East. They have a mandate to carve up a new Middle East. If you look at a map of the Middle East today, Jordan never existed. Neither did Iraq. It was all carved up. Uh, later, the League of Nations got involved in the 20s and 30s. And finally, you know, we went through the Holocaust. And then they carved up a non-defensible little strip of land that some call Auschwitz borders. And they gave that to the Jews. David Ben-Gurion stood up in 1948. And he said, this land shall be called Israel. I said last week, if you were alive then, it was a modern-day miracle. No nation had ever gone out of existence and come back. It's still a miracle today um, when you look at it. The day after, they were attacked by five armies, Arab armies that surrounded them. They were outmanned and outgunned. One of the books that we have out there is O Jerusalem. It's actually written by a New York Times columnist, not a believer, talking about um, not the miraculous side of how they survived, but some of the things the Jews had planned pre-1948 because they knew they were going to be attacked. It's fascinating. Well, they survive. However, Jerusalem is split west for the Jews and east uh, under Jordanian control. And then, the last date I'll give you is 1967, which everybody knows was the Six-Day War. Israel knew that the Egyptians were about to attack, so they, they gave a preemptive strike. Jordan was brought in. Syria was brought in. In six days, they took the Golan. They took the West Bank. They took all of Jerusalem. And they fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that, that Jerusalem would be in Gentile control until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. That was 1967. 1967, the prophetic time clock began ticking. So where are we in 2015? Uh, if you watch the old Batman, which you have to be at least 40 or 50, remember it was next week, same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, I hate saying that, but next week we'll talk about 2015 and beyond. But let me leak a few things out. 
2015, I share with you Israel agriculturally, technologically, and in so many ways they are advanced. In fact, second only to the U.S. in some of these areas. They are a very prosperous nation. They have a great military. They have nuclear weapons. They are not a perfect people by far. Uh, next week I'll talk about what is the role of the church? What is the role of Israel? How does that coalesce? How do those epics work together? Because so many of you are asking, I'll talk about blood moons next week, the harbinger, the shmiatah, or whatever, however you pronounce it, uh, the Iran deal, Putin, the Antichrist, Armageddon. But let me leak this out. Maybe the Bible's most amazing prophecy for the time we live in. Zechariah chapter 12 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people around it. When they shall be in... Uh, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem, in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, and all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth will be gathered against it. What is the future of Israel? Not good. All the armies of the world are coming against her. And even the U.S. probably one day will renounce Israel. After 2,500 years of being scattered to every nation on the earth, Persecuted and hated, surviving a holocaust, the Jews are in their land and Jerusalem's the capital. And they are a cup of trembling and they are a burdensome stone. You think of the cities of the world, Paris, New York, London, we can go on and on, Moscow. They, they all have a reason, Rome, they all have a reason why they're famous, you know, there's something about them. Jerusalem has nothing, nothing. It's countries the size of New Jersey, it has nothing to offer you touch that mosque of Omar, you'll start World War III. You touch the Jerusalem side, you'll start World War III. It's the most expensive piece of property in the world. Rome claims it's the eternal city now. And Rome and Jerusalem have always had this crazy interplay. I'll talk about that next week. Paris is not in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every day. Jerusalem is. It's a cup of trembling. Europe doesn't know what to do with it. The U.S. doesn't know what to do with it. The Arabs don't know what to do with it. Well, they know what to do with it. Russia knows what they want to do with it. I mean, it, it is a burden right now. It's really a burden. Uh, Jesus said to the Jewish people, I came in my Father's name and you didn't believe me. There is one coming in his own name. Him you'll believe. Uh, the word Antichrist tricks us up because we think it's, oh, the Antichrist. Listen, the word Antichrist means against Christ, but it also means in place of Christ. Jesus said, I came in my Father's name. I looked over Jerusalem. I wept. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets. You've missed the day of your visitation. He said, I visited you, this city of peace. This was your day. The very stones would have cried out. And you missed it. Jesus said, you didn't believe me, but there's one coming. The Bible says he comes from a revived Roman Empire. He's a religious figure. He, speak, he speaks great and pompous words. He'll make peace with Israel. They'll accept it. Everyone in Israel wants peace. Israel is scheduled to be deceived. That's why we pray for its peace. But it's scheduled to be deceived one last time. Now, we always end with good news, right? The good news is that Jerusalem is the only city that's ever existed uh, that exists in heaven and on earth. 
And in Revelation chapter 21, this is what I love about the Bible, it tells us we win. Chapter 21, John said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eye, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these things are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he'll be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And this is the second death. And You can read in verse 9 on the New Jerusalem. And I love this. It has no sun and it has no moon because God is its light. You know why I love that verse? Because people that mock creationism will say, well, how did God create a world where there was no sun? Why was the sun created later? Well, because in the beginning, God said, let there be light. Well, how can there be light without a sun? Well, there's going to be light without a sun in the New Jerusalem. God doesn't need a sun and a moon. That was for signs and seasons. God can give us light any way he wants. And by the way, for all those people that claim they went to heaven and they were there seven days and nights, the Bible says there's no night in heaven, no night in New Jerusalem. So by the end of next week, you're going to be throwing a lot of books out that you've bought, okay? The future of all of us on earth is bleak. We get 70 years. I told my wife one time, you know, someone we love dearly was in their 70s and they were sick. And I said, why is the end always bad? And she said, it's always bad if you look at it from the perspective of this world. Guys, there's a new world coming. I just read for you. It's, it's going to be grand and glorious. And we're moving quickly to that place. Next week, I'll take you into the future of Israel.